Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it gives me immense pride and pleasure to introduce our next guest, Dave Zalowski. Dave Zalowski is co-founder of Wicklander Zalowski and Associates and co-author of the WZ Non-Confrontational Method of Interview and Interrogation. He and Doug Wicklander started Wicklander Zalowski and Associates all the way back in 1982. And over the last 40 plus years, WZ has grown to be the premier non-confrontational interview and interrogation training and advisory firm on the planet. Their team of investigators trains law enforcement, federal agents, private sector investigators, human resources, and beyond how to obtain the truth with morally, legally, and ethically acceptable techniques based on establishing rapport and building empathy with their subjects. That organization prioritizes obtaining the truth over all else. And the WZ non-confrontational method of interview and interrogation is quite likely the most versatile and applicable method of interviewing across all types of cases and investigations. The adaptability and the success of that method that really moves people through the psychological stages necessary in order for them to convince themselves it's okay to tell the truth is spectacular. That method literally changed the course of my career. And Dave Zalowski, in many ways, has changed the course of my life. He's not just a former boss. He is a mentor. He is a friend. He is somebody that I look up to as an uncle, somebody who cares so much, not just about the people who work for him and his organization, but everybody who goes through the training and who uses the techniques and is successful in applying them in their career. He has poured his heart and soul into this organization, into his techniques. And he is somebody, like I said before, that has had an incredible impact on my life. And I'm grateful for every conversation that I ever had with him and all that he poured into me in the 15 or so years that we've known each other at this point. So I am so excited to have him on the show, share a little bit about the genesis of WZ and his methodology, and of course, share his stories and philosophy and so forth. This is a conversation that I'm so, so, so very excited to have. Before we jump into it, of course, we want to thank our sponsors. First, we want to thank Humantel for everybody out there who is looking to continue to develop their observational skill set. Please head over to humantel.com and check out all of their articles and videos and resources to learn more about accurately evaluating somebody's nonverbal communication to identify when their emotions are shifting and what that likely means in the context of your conversations. And once you're there, if you believe the online training is best for you, please enter the code in of 25 for 25% off of all of their best-in-class online training. I've taken it all. I can vouch for it all. Please check it out, engage it. I promise you will learn to evaluate communication in a way that you never have before. Also, please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com and dive into their ever-expanding content of emotional intelligence material. You have their articles, their videos, their webinars, their podcast interviews, their online and in-person events. There's so much over there. Please check it out for all of your emotional intelligence needs. And of course, especially when we're interviewing Dave Zalowski today, please check out 
about the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. That elite organization is fully dedicated to furthering the industry of interview and interrogation and making sure that all professional interviewers are executing morally, legally, and ethically successful techniques in all of their conversations. Go there for their legal updates. Go there for their content updates. Go there for the networking opportunities. Check out the online content, the in-person training events that they hold. See if membership to the association is right for you as an individual or for your organization. And of course, while you're there, please check out the certified forensic interviewer designation. See if you qualify. And that designation is the next best step for you as you progress in your career as an investigator as well. Once again, today's guest, Dave Zalowski. I'm so excited for this conversation. So without further ado, I introduce to you, Dave Zalowski. Good morning, Dave Zalowski. I cannot tell you how happy it makes me to see you again. How are you? I'm doing well, and I appreciate the the invite, and it's great to see you as well. Thank you so much. Uh, For people that don't know, I mean, let the cat out of the bag. I worked for you for 10 years. Um, But throughout the time that I've known you, you have been one of the most influential and important people in my life. You taught me so much, not just about interview and interrogation, but beyond. Most of it in a very loving way, but some of it in a very necessary disciplinary kind of way. I to say that. Um, but no, seriously, in many of the favorite times that I had were when I was either busy or pretending to be busy and you would come upstairs and ask me if I wanted to go grab a pizza for lunch and you and I just going out and sitting down over a pizza and whether we were talking about sports or family or life or interrogation, it didn't matter. Those are some of my absolute favorite memories of our time together. And for today, I'm hoping to share even just a sliver of the wisdom that you'd shared with me over the years with everybody else. (laughs) Well, that probably won't take long. This will be one of the shortest (laughs) podcasts you've ever had. And we've got all the self-effacing out of the way up front (laughs) so so we can dive into it. Um, So for people who don't know, um, if if they're just logging in and and press and play and and they haven't done any digging, you are the co-founder of Wicklender Zalowski and Associates, one of the leading non-confrontational interview and interrogation training and advisory firms on the planet with a significant reach that's touched organizations in and out of law enforcement and private sector all around the world. You are the co-creator of the WZ method of non-confrontational interview and interrogation. You've authored textbooks, countless amount of articles, spoke at any number of conferences. The the list goes on and on and on. Um, So, Literally, we are talking to somebody who is today, you, we're talking to somebody who is, what was the word that we, that you don't want to use, but I will, celebrity, legends, Mount Rushmore, like the impact that you've had on the world of interview and interrogation is significant. So if you could, could you help us kind of lead through the journey that led you to starting WZ? Yeah, well, um, I know you know this, but I, I started off uh, in college as a, being trained to be a geologist. And um, when I came and graduated to discover there was no mining operations in Chicago and I couldn't find a job with any consulting company because with a bachelor's, you basically know nothing. And um, so my dad found an ad in the paper that said, 
rail, go work for the railroad as a special agent. I had no idea what a special agent was, but it turned out that they were basically the, the police of the of the railroad. We did um, interstate theft investigations, internal investigations for the company, and um, and then after a couple of years there, I wanted to kind of further my experience. So I went to a, a suburban police department and did a little bit of everything from patrol to um, investigations. And then um, had a particularly long evening and decided I couldn't do this for years and years into the future. And uh, one of the guys I was working with says, well, why don't we go be polygraph examiners? And so I called uh, the local uh, school that would, had a master's program at the time and went to uh, to them and spent uh, uh, six months learning to be an examiner and then worked for them for a couple of years and uh, then uh, worked for a paper and pencil honesty testing company um, as a, uh, a sales rep and consultant and then uh, uh, I had met Doug Wicklander at the Polygraph uh, Company, and he uh, he was very entrepreneurial and says, "Why don't we go start our own business?" And you know, and I we we talked about it, and then that kind of died off. And then he called me from Florida, and he said, "I'm sitting here on my lanai, uh, looking over the golf course, and the only people out on the golf course are uh, people who work for themselves." And so I said, well, I'm having a terrible day. Let's do it. Uh, turned out that that was a lie. The only people on the golf course are employees. I don't think the principals of the place and that ever get a chance to go golfing, at least not in our company. Um, so, so that was where we started in May of 82. Um, so we're a little bit over 40 years old now. So big part of my life was there. And initially it was just Doug and I. And um, then we had a part-time secretary and, you know, today we do closing on probably 500 seminars a year around the world. So it's uh, quite a, quite a change from the Doug and Dave uh, operation at the beginning. In uh, multiple evolutions for sure. And, and I enjoyed hearing those stories when we worked together often over a beverage or two of, of you and Doug starting the organization. And I would love to have been a, a fly on the wall or have a time machine to go back and see what your expectations were and what you guys thought you were getting into and what it turned out to be so far, like you said, 43 years later, wherever we are. Yeah. Well, I initially, uh, I was hoping for a regular paycheck, to be honest with you. That was that was it. And, um, you know, I had no business uh, training at all. Uh, my dad was in, in, uh, in finance and purchasing. Um, my mom was a nurse. So my background was very different from Doug's. Doug uh, came from a family uh, self-employed um, printing company. So he had a better, a much better sense of business than I did. I, you know, at the beginning, I didn't even know how to read a balance sheet. So, um, you know, it's, it was quite a, 
to say that I had expectations, I don't think was really true because I don't, I was just hoping we'd get paid after six months because the first six months we didn't, didn't take a salary, didn't, uh, didn't take any money out of the business at all. So that six months was kind of a, boy, I hope, I hope there's a piece of paper here coming on Friday. I know that feeling. Yes, I know you do. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you met Doug at the polygraph company. For people that don't know, WZ, Wicklander, Zalowski, Doug Wicklander, Dave Zalowski. Um, so for me, I always knew you two as relatively inseparable. In the, where there was one, there was the other. You, you had built this whole thing together. As you and Doug were building the company together, how was that relationship helpful, but also maybe challenging as you guys were figuring this out as you were going? Well, it, you know, in initially there was just the two of us, I mean, for the first several years. So uh, basically we both knew everything, you know, so if, if a check was being cut, you know, if a decision was made on insurance, we knew everything. And um, as we got bigger, um, we began to kind of have to shift roles a little bit. And um, Doug's wife, I know you know this, was, she says that between the two of us, we made one good man, um, <laughs> which is, is, is really true. I mean, Doug was the finance guy. Um, he was the numbers guy. I mean, if the, if the balance sheet was off by a penny, he would spend hours looking for that penny. You know, me, I'd say, well, you know, I'll find one on the street and throw it in the bin, you know, that. So, um, you know, my job kind of transferred over to um, doing more of the writing, the research, um, you know, working on seminar development, you know, research and development kind of things was mm -hmm. what what I ended up uh, being involved in. And, you know, we still would meet um, so that, you know, we we knew what each other was doing, but as we started to get you know new hires and uh, bring more people on, um, it became you know more difficult. Um, you know, one of the things as as you know that we we typically did was met at the end of each day and and had a a drink and kind of talked over everything. And uh, you know, we did. I mean, to me, that was one of the most valuable parts because we got to. We got to share uh, ideas. We got to brainstorm. We got to, uh, uh, you know, hear what everybody was up to, both professionally and personally. Um, and and so it was a it was a nice. Not only was it a good team building, I think, but it was also uh, good for the business that you know we could spark new ideas and then begin to spin off on that. Definitely. I remember those conversations fondly. Um, I would love to kind of, I guess it's along the same lines as starting the organization. If I recall correctly, and of course, correct me everywhere, I've got the story screwed up. I don't have all the brain cells that I once did. Um, essentially, you and Doug really started out focusing more on the polygraph side. And then over time, kind of morphed towards more of the training side. And in somewhere in there was the development of the WZ method. Right. Interrogation. I would love for you to the degree that you can to take us back to you and Doug 
creating that that specific method of interrogation? What motivated you to do it? And how did that initially start coming together? Yeah. Um, you know, the, all the uh, the time in the police department and, and with the railroad, um, you know, I, we never really had any formal training for interviewing. And, and in fact, there really wasn't much available anywhere. Um, when I became a, a polygraph examiner, it was a, it was you know, critically important to to do interviews prior to the polygraph and then do a post interview uh, if the person failed to try to resolve what the problem was. So um, the way we were trained was that, you know, if the person failed the polygraph, you would come in and and accuse them directly. You did rape, rob, murder, stole, whatever you had done. And it became evident to me that almost everybody said, no, I didn't. And so not only had they lied about it, they'd reinforced the lie. And now we set up a, a real confrontation type of um, conversation that was going to occur. And I'm not a very confrontational guy. And I found this very difficult. In fact, the the, uh, the company sent me back through their interrogation course three times. And for the life of me, I could not do it the way they was because it it just it felt wrong to me, number one, and my personality didn't fit it. Um, but that was the only training that I've ever had. And so when we went out um, and we started really with the retail world doing uh, either pre-employment polygraph testing or specific issue testing, um, you know, primarily on theft-related issues, fraud and embezzlement type of cases, um, that didn't fit in that kind of an environment, um, you know, that very direct kind of heavy handed statements. And um, we ran across a couple of guys that um, were from the old Montgomery wards. Mm -hmm. um, and what they would do is they would start off by kind of telling the person who they were and the types of crimes that they investigated and how they investigated. And then they would say, did you steal the money? And it, it was, this was really brilliant. I thought because they were doing it, they were doing it wrong, but what they were doing was they were setting up a non-confrontational approach. And so that was really the, um, the first, um, what I want to say, the first uh, semblance of an idea that there, there could be a structure to this approach rather than just going in and talking at somebody. You're talking, this this was a way to talk with them. And so we started with that and modified it and, um, you know, set up um, some um, you know, the types of types of, of incidents that they might do. And so we we worked with that to see if you, you know, if you ordered them in a different way, does it help? It, you, you know, should we do a pause? And so eventually what we came to was that, um, you know, the, the first part was the employee 
or the person is important. The second piece was, here's what you did. We don't say it directly, but kind of an inference that the person would have the ability to not be accused, but to know where the conversation was heading. And then we would simply describe how we do investigations, which was the, you're caught. And then what what they were missing was a way to to kind of justify the person's uh, error in judgment, if you will. And, and so that's where we then built the rationalization piece in. And then instead of saying, did you do it? We would ask it assumptively. What's the most amount of money? What's the most amount of times that you did it? Because if we already knew that you had done it, why would we be asking, did you do it? So, and then then would come the development piece where we would move from what we knew or suspected into areas of other things. Um, and then that um, was kind of the foundation of the original non-confrontational. And then later we were preparing uh, for uh, uh, the National Retail Loss Prevention Conference. And I was looking at some videos and all of a sudden it hit me there's a structure to what we're doing. And so then we broke out the structure and, and that's kind of where it is today that it's, you know, it's, it's moving somebody from a, a point of resistance to a point of acceptance where we can, we can talk about, um, you know, what, what they've done. And, you know, much like a salesperson, you know, you you do your pitch and you you know you don't say, do you want to buy? You say, you know, how many should I deliver on Thursday for you? And and so that's where kind of the assumptive question came in. And then we would support that and and then move into the development piece. And so that that was so much more my style of personality because it was in no way kind of for, uh, confrontational. It was simply a means whereby um, we could have a conversation with somebody and end up discussing it, discussing it without um, backing them into a corner and making them feel threatened. So it, that's kind of a short evolutionary period of, uh, you know, probably 15 years. And then post that 15 years, it's continued to go through evolutions. And I'm sure I know for a fact it's happened since I was there, uh, but continue to go through evolutions as the research changes, as the laws change, as we interviewed, we, I mean, I was there for a period of time, but as we interviewed people that had been interrogated and learned from their experiences, what seemed to motivate them, what seemed to cause resistance. So we had the practitioners who were learning from their experiences. We had the people who were being interviewed, sharing their experiences. Right. We had the academic input, the, the world of science. We had the case law input. So it's continued to be evolved and fine-tuned over time. And I'm imagining it still is knowing Dave right. and, and all the work that he's doing as well. Um, so it's, it's fantastic to hear kind of where it comes from and where it all started and how it goes together. And I love the analogy that you use of, of moving people. 
because that's really what it does. And you know better than me, but, you know, sitting in front of somebody and watching them sit down and look at you like you're either a brick wall or a monster. Like I have nothing to say to you. And then throughout, well, if we do it right, that introductory statement is five minutes. If I'm doing it, it it could be eight or nine. (laughs) Um, But through that five minutes, watching them literally move as they start to think, oh, wait a minute, you sound pretty credible. Oh, wait a minute. You know, all these things happen. Oh, wait a minute. You have those tools. Oh, wait a minute. You're not judging me. Oh, wait a minute. You understand. Oh, wait. You mean I can save face and this is the time for me to influence? um, Yeah, it was X date. It was this. It was who it was. And then the handshake, the handshake at the end of the conversation, you know, after the written statement. So it really is that structure that you and Doug created really is moving people throughout that process. And it becomes a wonderful, depending on the conversation, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes setup to that first question. So it's like right. all that work is done before we ever ask somebody the first question. I have so many memories of you telling me, in this context, obviously, is important, but don't ask the question unless we think they're ready to answer it. Right. And that whole process, that WZ method is set up to make sure that they have put themselves in a position where they've chose to, chosen to answer the question before we ever pop it. Right. And, it, you know, it's, that's probably the biggest thing for a salesperson is you don't want to ask for the sale until the customer is ready to purchase. I mean, it's this, you know, is basically the same thing. Um, you know, I think probably the two of the most valuable things that we did that you mentioned was, first of all, talking to um, people who had been interviewed or been in trouble and asking them, you know, how they felt, why they they did or didn't do something to give us an insight of, you know, what's going on in the individual's mind. And then from my standpoint, um, you know, we were always kind of stuck as a practitioner. uh, Well, it worked. It must be good. And, um, you know, it's only probably been in the last, what what do you think, 20 years, maybe where the researchers have started to to pick apart the, the process of interview and interrogation and really look at, and not so much what works, but what we shouldn't be doing, um, you know, and, and how suggestible people are and how suggestible children are. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that, you know, we kind of assumed and some of them we were right. And some of them we were doing that was absolutely the worst thing that we could be doing. Um, and so, you know, to your point of the evolution of things, We've tried to incorporate those ideas in the, the process um, and, you know, keep keep from um, doing what's not necessarily immorally illegal or anything else, but it protects the person that we're talking to as well. Because uh, I think the last thing any of us ever wanted to do was get an innocent person to implicate themselves. And, um, you know, I mean, as as DNAs come around, um, there are actually innocent people in jail. Yes. Uh, You know, everybody tells you they're innocent when they're in jail, but um, there actually are some where they they were uh, convicted either based on a confession that was uh, 
illegally obtained or coerced or um, persuaded um, and without any information from the factual basis to support the conviction. And once that happens, getting them out is, is real tricky. And that's why the innocence projects around the company country are, are I think, really um, uh, doing a fantastic job. Even though investigators don't necessarily like being questioned that they've done something wrong, but um, I think that's part of the responsibility too. Is when when you you've made an error, you've got to try to fix it. Try to make it right. And I certainly want to highlight that that's not just lip service. WZ for years now has been committed to working with the Innocence Project and other organizations in order to help get innocent people out of jail who have been incarcerated based in part or whole on false confessions and right. you this team has been involved i don't know whether they say our team this team i still feel like i'm part of it which is a little yeah. sumptuous on, on my end i get it um but we've been involved to the level of influencing law at the state and federal level to yep. conducting interviews to working with the influ influence uh, influence to the innocence project to serving as witnesses in legal proceedings i mean it's something Avoiding false confessions and getting people who have been convicted on a false for falsely confessing is something that WZ as an organization has been wholly dedicated to. And when I when I tell people that one of the premier training organizations on interview and interrogation is working to also make sure that people are out of jail if they falsely confessed, oftentimes that feels contradictory, but it is so important for the integrity of the industry or, the, or whatever term that we want to use, but also adhering to those ethical standards that, that we espouse to. Well, you know, and, and I, you know, I think it, there's very few law enforcement people who would want to get a false confession. I, I think that's not, I think that to a large extent there, it happens because they get such a limited amount of training. Mm-hmm. And they don't revisit it. I mean, they might, well, I went to an interrogation course five years ago. Um, I mean, I had a, a detective, and we were talking to a lady who, uh, I don't even remember what the case was, but he said, well, that's it. I'm going to go in there and tell her if she doesn't confess, I'm going to take her kid from her. And I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean you can't do that? I said, you can't do that. Um, you know, because that would potentially any innocent person you know, it'd be like having your son get taken away from you, you know, or I'm going to arrest your wife, you know. And so sometimes they just don't know better. Um, but, you know, that's all you can do is train to best practices um, and employ best practices. And, um, you know, sometimes you don't, you, you don't get a confession. Well, you know, sometimes you'll never get a confession. And what you have to do is there should be an investigation that sets up the details that supports this. You know, well, I, you know, I didn't kill my wife. Well, how come your phone pings at the location of where the body was discovered, um, you know, six hours before, you know, how do we explain that? You know, now, you know, now it's, there's a factual component that supports an admission, which mm -hmm. I think convicting somebody simply on their mission uh, their admission alone is um, 
is generally a bad idea. It's a slippery slope at best, more often than not. And for me, obviously, there's probably three areas of ownership and it can change in situation to situation. The investigators, because sometimes the investigators are separate from the interrogator. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. Right. So who was collecting the initial evidence? Did they get enough detail? Did they talk to the right people? Did they ask the right questions? Do they have the, they're not going to have all the information, but have they got strategically valuable information that's helpful to identify the truth? Then we have the interviewers. Are they using morally, legally, and ethically sound techniques as they're moving to get the truth? And then let's say we get a confession. What are we doing post-interview? Like, who's prosecuting these cases without going back to verify that what we were told in the interview room is true? And maybe sometimes that's impossible or difficult. But to your point about the phone pinging off the tower, I don't have to go back and verify every detail of what this person told me. But from the interrogator standpoint, if I capture that statement in enough detail, the who, the what's, the where, the when's, all of these things, now from a post-interview investigation, I just have to go back and corroborate as many of those details as I can. And if I can corroborate a significant amount of them, I can feel really good about this admission. If I can't corroborate any of them, well, hang on. (laughs) We got to go back to the drawing board here. So I feel like there's sort of checkpoints that can get blown through at each stage that can cause an innocent person to end up in jail. And I also don't realize if I don't think people realize how easy it can be for an innocent person to confess to something. they didn't. Right. You know, and, and the, the opposite of that is if, if you're a guilty person, if I lock you into your lies, you know, well, I was here, 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 here. And we can disprove that. That's as powerful as a confession. Mm-hmm. And and so you know that's another piece of you know I was asked to be an expert witness on a case uh, out of uh, Indiana, and a guy had um, he was found in the river, and there was you know there really wasn't from the autopsy uh, any. You know, I mean, there was some bruising and there was some other stuff, but it could have been attributable to the fall from the bridge where they thought he went off. Well, the officers went to where he was staying. There was there was four kids um, and they're all younger, you know, probably 16 down to you know nine or 10, something like that. And they were they were supposedly the last people that had seen this guy alive. So. The police interviewed them and ended up getting confessions from three of the four. And each of the kids that confessed had the same basic story. So they were confirming each other. Um, you know, we we took the car. We went to the, the local um, 7-Eleven quick trip kind of a place. And we bought candy, uh, you know, using his debit card. Well, the cops went. And gee, there's there's no video of the kids being in the store. The guy's the guy's kind of a, a derelict. He doesn't have a bank account, much less a debit card. And you know, now where did all these similar confessions come from? Well, they have to come out of the interrogation that the officers were feeding or inadvertently feeding these kids information 
to shape their stories to confirm one another's. Mm-hmm. And you know, I told the police department, I can't testify in your behalf. And they were kind of like, well, it's it's just muddy over here. I said, well, it's it's like dumping mud into a bucket. Yeah. You know, everything is muddy. You know, there's not half as clean and half as muddy. And and so, you know, when you go back and you read look at uh you know, interrogations that have been filmed. And that's why we are big advocates of of filming, especially juveniles, but most people. Um, you can you can see the evolution of the admission. You can see the details coming out. Um, you can see where there was coercion, if there was, or where there was feeding of details, if that was part of it. Um, so, you know, that's, we've always, Filmed, as you know, um, our our interviews partly for training, but also for quality control. So we have, we have a we can offer feedback. It's not did you just get a confession? Okay, great job. Let's go on to the next one. It was well, how did you arrive there? You know, what did you do, and what was the uh, you know what was the investigation leading up? How did that happen? What did you get over and above that that we didn't know about that that to your point, we could then go back and corroborate and add uh, detail and supporting facts to that. Yeah, I have both fantastic and heart pounding memories of you watching my videos with me. <laughs> yes, I think. Yes, they were heart pounding for me as well. Oh, I have no doubt. I have. <laughs> I have no doubt. The, the anxiousness was probably coming from different sources for, for each of us. Um, but no matter how, I mean, obviously knowing I never did a perfect one, clearly. Um, Nobody has. But no matter how well I thought I did, sitting next to you, every, people that know me know I'm from New England. I tell people that sitting next to you watching videos was like sitting next to Bill Belichick. Like no matter how good I thought I did, the silence between when you hit the pause button and when you started offering feedback was like the most stressful three to 10 seconds of my life wondering what am I going to hear? But not only did it protect us, not only did it protect the interview subjects, but it, it did create these wonderful training opportunities, not just for the people we train, but for ourselves. And I tell people all the time in the organization I worked for prior to coming on board with you, we audio video recorded as well, which was a recommendation they got directly from you. So I had some experience being recorded before I got to you. And I tell people all the time, whether they're in sales, whether they're interviewing job candidates, whether it's an investigative interviewing, whether they're negotiators, it doesn't matter. If there are conversations that they are participating in regularly, record them. And if they can't record the real ones, record the role plays. I remember the first time you walked upstairs into my office, asked me if I was busy, which was cover for stop whatever you're doing. And then told me, go downstairs, set up the video camera and give me your introductory statement. I want it on my desk in 15 minutes. Now here I am feeling foolish the first time interrogating a video camera, but it gave us the opportunity to break that down as well. And I truly believe like my trajectory went from this to this, like horizontal to vertical, just by going through that video review process. And I still, two of the biggest piece of advice is you ever gave me, and there were many, one time you watched one of my interrogations and told me I sounded too needy. 
And that when you sound too needy, you give the other person control in the conversation. I carry that to this day across all of my high impact conversations and not giving someone else home field advantage. One gentleman was a little bit uh, aggressive, probably not the right term, but he assertive. Uh, we'll find a professional term later, but I was more than happy to meet him there. And in the moment, I felt good about it because the conversation ended very well. It ended in our favor. We got everything that we needed. It ended up well. And then when I sat down and watched it with you and you paused it multiple times and asked me what I was doing and what I was thinking and why, and I'm giving him whole field advantage, that is something that has paid dividends for me in, in the years that have come. So those conversations and those video reviews were of critical importance. Yeah, I I don't think, you know, you don't get the same you know, just sitting across from somebody and saying, say it to me, you'll never get as good a feedback because it's not there anymore. Yeah. And even if you're taking notes, you say, well, I didn't say that. Well, yeah, you did. I, you know, well, now we're, we're arguing about how you said it or how you sounded when you can sit and listen and watch it. Uh, I, I don't think you can get more valuable training than that kind of feedback. No, it was instrumental in what I what I did in the interview room and everything I do outside of the interview room. And and I tell people this all the time. Working for WZ, learning all the guys, but specifically talking with you today, learning how you think, learning how you saw angles, learning how you were anticipating where people were likely going to go and getting there first. Like Listening to you prepare for conversations, talk about the conversations that you've had, going through preparations with you, where I would come downstairs and say, okay, Dave, this is the case I've got. This is who I'm going to talk to. This is what I know, which often was almost nothing, but this is what I think right. I know. So, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And then you dissecting my game plan and teaching me how to think. Those are things where recently I had a problem with an auto dealership getting my wife's truck fixed. And I had a problem with the doctor getting some therapy that I needed approved. And literally the thought processes and questioning techniques that you helped me hone and, and Shane and Wayne and Brett and Chris and everybody helped me hone are the techniques that I used in order to get both of those situations solved, which couldn't be any further in theory from interview and interrogation but it's that thought process that right. we work through together that serves so critical across the board. Yeah. And, and that's just simply understanding the other person's point of view, mm -hmm. you know, and um, you know, if, if you know um, a person's been had, had a difficult conversation at any time, I mean, we could talk about it in the interview room or we could talk about anything once you know what they did, that's likely what they're going to do in the future because it's, it's something easy. At some point, it worked for them, and rather than invent something new, they go back and do it. So once you, once you can anticipate, as you said, kind of what that's going to be, then you, you set the conversation so it's very difficult for them to use that. I mean, conceivably, they still could, but the conversation is limiting them, you know? So yeah. if somebody's argumentative and, and you come in and you say, you did it, you can, you can anticipate what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. It's going to be aggressive. It's going to be denial. Well, we don't want that to happen. So how do we structure our conversation to avoid that? Yeah. And it's, 
the the humor I've taken from having con- preparation conversations with clients prior to a negotiation or a business development conversation or whatever it is and saying, okay, well, based on our goal, who we need to talk to in the context of the situation, it's pretty safe to assume that they're going to want to say or do these things. So because of that, let's either do this first or plan to respond to this after. And then when those exact things happen in the conversation, they ask after, well, how do you know? It's not magic. It's actually pretty simple math. If, if you stop, if you at the very least use the universality of the human experience, how do people typically react in these situations? Dynamics based on relationship, title, perceived power, consequence, whatever. That's all fairly universal. Start there. And now let's work in the specific dynamics of what do we know about the people and the situation and the environment and those things. You can, to a scary level, you can craft how a conversation will go prior to that conversation ever taking place just with that strategic forethought. Right. And and that kind of was the next evolution of the non-confrontational was actually putting a piece up in front of that introductory statement that you mentioned that protects you against going into those bad areas. So if somebody's going to say, well, you know, I was never trained, well, then before we get into what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about training and how, how adept they are at, at the, the process or the policies and procedures. And do they know how to do this? And once we've done that, we've basically locked them into a box. Well, I knew how to do this. Okay. Well, at the end of the game, we have evidence that you did it outside that box. So how do we explain that? And, you know, that um, that sometimes is, I mean, I, I had a, a case with a, a senior vice president. I mean, the guy was, I mean, had some gambling issues and, you know, alcohol and some other issues, but he was a pretty strong-willed guy, as most people are at that level. Um, and he, uh, you know, we went through and, I mean, coincidentally, they had a video of him um, taking a product out of a bin. And you, there's a process. If you're going to take something out, you got to have a piece of paper. And that piece of paper has to go to your hair and neck. Well, I didn't think this guy was probably going to confess. So I walked him through. So what happens in the warehouse at this? Is there ever a reason that you wouldn't have a piece of paper before you took something? Nope, never would be. And is there ever a reason it wouldn't go here? Nope, there never would be. Well. Here's the video. Where's the paper? You know, so that that was what ended up getting him fired was the fact that, you know, we had locked him in up front and, you know, the having him say, well, I did this and this and this. I mean, that could have happened, but with as, as strong-willed as he was, that was pretty unlikely. Sure. And And that all, to your point, was understanding, you know, kind of what they were going to do and what we needed in order to put them into a position where we were going to be able to use the facts that we had to help uh, resolve the case. And from a, if somebody's listening to that and thinking, well, it sounds like you're trying to put them in a box. Well, in theory, yeah, to be honest, for the purpose of obtaining the truth, we are. But knowing that the truth is the ultimate goal, going through that process also gives them the chance to let us know that we're wrong. And that's exactly. happened before. 
where oh, I've absolutely. used that same approach thinking I was walking somebody down the road to where I was going to interrogate them. And halfway through, I'm going, no, absolutely not. This person didn't know, wasn't educated, wasn't there, used a different process. Somebody else is involved. And now okay. we're throwing it's the air brakes on. We never get to an interrogation. This person never knows that they were going to get interrogated. Right. So it serves on both sides of that coin. Yes, it puts us in a position to be successful, but it also gives them the opportunity to educate us and avert an unnecessary interrogation. Rufus Wong. And and if you just simply went in and and immediately said, well, how do you do this? You know, for somebody who's guilty, alarm bells go off and they would say, oh, gee, I'm not sure, you know. But if you structure it, as you know, in a in a way that leads up to it and doesn't it's not an important question anymore then they're going to tell you what they've actually done or didn't do and that's and that's to both our benefits we protect the innocent and we can lock the uh deceptive or guilty person into a fact set that the investigation now can disprove and the focus on prioritizing truth over confession is what helped guides that. And to some people that might sound like they're one and the same, or it doesn't make a difference. It is imperative. If I go in looking for the truth, like you said, prove me wrong. All options are on the table. If I go in looking for a confession, hello, Mr. Nail, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Mr. Hammer. And I'm going to keep slamming away until I feel like I've got what I need to walk out of here with my self-image intact, because my self-image was to be the guy who got the confession. And prioritizing the truth helps keep us out of those traps. Yep. Sounds like you learned it well. (laughs) Well, I was told over and over and over and over and over again. (laughs) Yeah, well, it took a long time to Slam it in your head. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I don't envy anybody that had to be my boss or superior at any point in time in my career, most especially when I worked with you guys, because not only did I represent your name and your company and the techniques that you created, but I was doing it with relatively little supervision out on the road. So the amount of trust that you had to have in me. I can only imagine you and Doug and Shane losing sleep at night. Who who did we just send to do what? Yeah, we we were pretty confident that you could handle it. Yeah, I appreciate that. One of my favorite memories of my whole entire experience there, but with you specifically, two of them are actually from the, the interview. So I had known Wayne and Brett a little bit. They they put me in touch. Shane agrees to interview me. I fly out. You guys took me to lunch first, and then you bring me back to the office for the interview. And if I recall correctly, you and I were sitting on one side of the conference table and Shane and Doug were sitting on the other. And Shane and Doug were asking me questions. So I'm literally being grilled by three of the top interrogators that I've ever known to exist, which was a fun experience in and of itself. And then out of nowhere, you very calmly turn your chair so you're facing me and say, Michael, please give me your introductory statement. (laughs) So the guy who invented this is now asking me to do it in front of the other guy that invented this on zero seconds notice. So that was a a gut check moment for me. But the funny one, and, and the one that I think in a lot of ways really set up our relationship, and not just with you and me, but the relationship that you had with, with all of us was you guys went upstairs to deliberate and left me in the conference room. 
I don't know that ever I ever told any of you this, but you guys were gone for whatever it was, half hour, 45 minutes, hour, whatever it was. And I'm sitting in the conference room and I'm thinking to myself, this is an interrogation company and they record their interrogations. There has to be a camera in here. Are they watching me? Now, for everybody listening, there was the camera was in another room. It wasn't in that. It wasn't in that room. As I would later find out. So I'm literally sitting dead still in that chair in that conference room, not wanting to move or do anything because I was convinced you guys were watching me from another room. But after time, a while had passed. You walked in with four beers, and you expected Shane and Doug to be there. And you looked at me and you're like, Have "Shane and Doug come back down yet?" I was like, "No." They haven't. And you just went, oh, okay. And you put the beers down and walked out. And now I'm like, they are messing with me. Don't touch those beers. Don't look at those beers. I know I'm on camera right now. And you guys came down and informed me of your regrettable decision that you were going to bring me on board. And the, the rest is, is history after that. But well, yeah, I, I was then, sure you were messing with me. Uh, no, we were probably just talking about something else. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> passing in the hall. Um, I probably should ask, and I'm asking somebody who has done quite literally tens of thousands of investigative interviews. So to choose one and to choose one on the spot for any reason is an unfair question to ask. I'm sure people who are listening might be wondering to themselves, I wonder what Dave thinks is his most interesting or memorable or surprising or unique interrogation of all the ones that you've done. Do you have one that just kind of jumps to mind is worth sharing? You know, I, you get asked this question a lot, um, you know, and it, it's always, well, it, you know, what's your biggest case? And, and I mean, there's, you know, I've had big cases, but they weren't necessarily, um, well, I mean, we did did one years ago for a major retailer on kickbacks. Um, and it was a, a product that was being purchased for a dime more than the competitors. And the competitors were also willing to stock the shelves. And so the question was, why would we'd be paying an extra dime. Well, it doesn't sound like much, but when you're selling, you know, tens of thousands of pieces, you know, over a year or more, uh, you know, it became millions and millions of dollars. And th this was, uh, to me, what was interesting is I got to do the investigation as well. So, you know, we, you know, we went and pulled all the, the paperwork. We, phone records we you know did bank searches we did everything that you could could do at the time um i even went we we found that uh, the guy had a uh, a girlfriend in in detroit so i went out to surveil her and um so i'm sitting in the parking lot waiting for her to leave so i didn't know even what she looked like so first thing i did is i went in and delivered her flowers reportedly from her, her boyfriend. Um, and so she came out and accepted the flowers. So now I knew what I, what she looked like. So I watched, she came out of the, out of the uh, building, got in her car, made one right turn and lost me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was like, well, this isn't so good. And, 
you know, but we got to do the whole thing. And finally, when the interview came down, again, um, he was working with a, a vendor. We had the vendor come in um, so that we could do both the interviews at the exact same time. And we had spent six months of almost entirely me working on this case with another investigator uh, that was local. And um, so I'm interviewing the, uh, I don't remember, he's vice president, whatever he was. And and Doug was going to interview the uh, the vendor. And uh, so I'm I'm talking to the guy and he isn't buying anything that I'm saying. And so, you know, we go, we're talking for about an hour. And finally, I, I said, I'll be back. And I get up and I go see what, hopefully, Doug's got something. So well, I, I walk out and Doug's standing there with his paperwork. And he goes, I hope you got something. It's like, uh-oh. And so, I mean, we were, we were dead stopped. And I can remember, I said, wow. So I went back in and I just said, you know, Dwayne, who was the vendor, says that he gave you money. Now he says it was a loan. Was it a loan or was it a kickback? And he goes, it was a loan. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and, and so then uh, this guy, he, he would never admit, you know, anything. And, and uh, he, you know, he started to talk about his wife. I said, you know, because his wife had a side business. They were funneling the money. It was a very convoluted thing. But um. He said, oh, I can't believe she and Dwayne got me into this. I said, you know, let's get her down here. And maybe you could give her a call, ask her to come down. All right. So he calls her and and then says, uh, you know, okay, yeah, get down here right away. And she's, okay, I'm coming. And I and I said, and I don't know why I even thought of it. I said, tell her to bring her business records with her. And, and bring you all the business records with you. Okay. And so she shows up and she's got ledgers and... So I've got this ledger and we're going through this and I'm saying, I'm to her, okay, who's this? Oh, well, that's the cover that we use for Dwayne to get the money out. And I was like, okay. And she brings a shoebox. And this was back in the old days when you, you would tear a receipt off the bottom of your, you know, your check for uh, uh, like lunch or something and put that in. And I said, and they're all blank. I said, what are these? And she says, oh, those are an IRS scenario in case we ever need them. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I'm testifying in federal court, that was like the judge's like, and the jury's looking at her. And uh, I mean, most people would take a plea, you know, after the IRS agents went through and just, you know, got all the financial. And this guy, nope, we're going to go to trial. Wow. And ended up, uh, he could have got off with six months, ended up doing three years. And uh, his wife got convicted as well as, as well as the vendor. So, I mean, it was, it was fun in that I got to do the whole thing. You know, mm -hmm. most of the time, as you know, we don't get the investigation. We get, you know, whatever the company had and, and we're just the closers to kind of come in and do the conversation. So, so that was a, was fun. I mean, it was a big case, but it was more fun for me because we got to do everything. That's awesome. So I feel like when people ask me that question, my answer almost always is unsatisfactory to them because there's some dynamic in the relationship or some little piece of the conversation or something we didn't know going in that we found out later that makes it memorable as opposed to, you know, well, that was $5 million. Yeah. Yeah. 
But to me, every case was, I mean, it's that's the most important case to that client that we're working with each time. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, five bucks out of a register or it's, you know, several, several million dollars. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. Uh, I know we're starting to kind of push time a little bit, and I know I know you've got big plans for the day. I'd like to segue just for a minute, and you rightfully made jokes about me earlier coming coming on board and the quality of that decision. But from my perspective, I know this isn't entirely right. I was probably third generation employee. If because I know other people kind of came and went, but you and Doug, then eventually it was Shane and Wayne, then eventually it was Brett and Chris, and then it was myself and Bobby at the time, and now it's Dave and Tony and Amanda, and it, and it goes on. Right. Um, but from somebody who built the company yourself with your name on the door and your name on the technique, how did it feel to continue to sort of not just bring other people on board, but then also to turn them out into the world? trusting that they were representing you, your company and your techniques the right way. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that's always a a hard thing. I mean, the simplest part of the business was our very first year or two when it was just Doug and I, because we both knew everything. We've known each other for years. You know, uh, we had, you know, the trust between us that, you know, if there was a problem, we would talk about it, not hide it. Um, once you start adding people, and and especially at the beginning, you know, where we company didn't have a lot of money, we couldn't necessarily hire um, a journeyman, you know, who's who's really been through the business. We had to hire a lot of a lot of relatively brand new people either as polygraph examiners or as investigators and and then spend a lot of time kind of nurturing them where you know by the time um you came on board you know we were a little better off and we could we could get somebody who was already competent in the field and we just needed to tweak it to to our needs um and and so you know i think over time, the, I, really, I think the first person that that uh, we did that with was was Shane, because um, you know we were then I don't know probably maybe fifteen years into the business, something like that, and um, you know we were starting to to look at we need somebody who can not only do the job but can also take some of the some of the management roles. And so when we brought him in, we got him, you know, trained to our way, and then we could start to give additional responsibilities. And then, you know, as 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 the business began to mature, and we begin to mature, getting older in the business as well, you know, you start to think about well, there's going to be an end point, you know, either uh, either you know Doug or you know, I'm going to want to retire it someday. And, and as you know, Doug had some health issues that, you know, took him out of the business. And, and I was really fortunate that we had already had Shane in place, ready to take over the, the administrative role, which, which was essentially what Doug was doing. So he became, you know, the, the office 
administrator handled handled the bills, you know, do the day to day operational kinds of things. Um, and, you know, then we were fortunate enough at the same time to have, you know, Brett and Chris and, you know, kind of the they'd been with us a long time and still are that, you know, they were good, solid um, folks that, you know, we could could use. And and then, um, you know, you start to think about, well, you know, succession planning, you know, um, you know, what are we what are we going to do? You know, um, you know, first thing we did is brought uh, Shane and Wayne in as as partners. Um, so now, you know, when when it came time for uh, Doug to leave and, and uh, you know, when I retired, the um, we, we have somebody to purchase the business. And so then, you know, the next thing we've got to do is, well, you know, at some, at some point, Shane and Lane are going to get ready to go. So who have we got in place that we can either, you know, give those responsibilities to, or do we need to bring somebody in? Um, because, you know, the business may, you know, where the business could buy out from Doug and I, it it wouldn't necessarily be able to do it for Wayne and Shane because of the size of the business has grown. So, you know, you, it, yeah, those are real struggles and it's, it's better if you do that sooner than later. And, um, you know, thinking about finances, you know, we we never even had a 401k until you know 15 years into the business because we didn't know you know and and then we had an insurance agent who said well we need to have uh disability insurance i don't want to need disability insurance like i'm pretty good shape and you know then doug had his health problem and we were absolutely you know glad that we had it because um, you know, that really was a landing pad for him. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I think thinking sooner than later, and I, and I think bigger organizations do this because they've got it, you know, they've got HR and they've got some folks that, um, are, are dedicated to those kind of thought patterns, but as a small business, which, you know, we are under 50 people. So, um, you don't have all the hats filled necessarily. And so, you know, you, you need to think about what are we going to do? How are we going to, you know, what's the exit plan here? Um, or, you know, if, if a person leaves, what are we going to do? Do we, can we bring it from inside or do we have to go outside? So those were all things that, you know, as we uh, kind of matured as a business and probably as business people, we started to think about, well, you know, what's tomorrow going to look like rather than just thank God we got through today. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned being retired and congratulations you know, from what you started in a was, I think it was a Doug's basement or your basement where you guys hatched the plan and just to see it all the way through, yep. make it out the other side, company still thriving and doing great. There's so much to be proud of there. I would like to ask if you have any advice from what you learned through the process of starting the company and eventually stepping away from it, that can help other founders who might be considering stepping aside as well. Well, 
the first thing I would say is that if you're going to start a business, you need to have enough money. Uh, we we started on a shoestring, literally, and um, that's that's a way to get ulcers real quick. Um, but I think um, if you know, you need to think. You know, if you're coming at the end of your career, um, you know, what's the value of the business that you have? Um, and then who who are likely purchasers? Now, some businesses that's really easy. Um, we're in kind of a a unique niche, as are you. That you know, selling a business um, it isn't necessarily going to be you know people are so you have to think about well what you know what well our name has some value because you know we we have a reputation of forty years of quality work. Uh, we have some staff that are fully trained, but if the staff left, you know it. You've lost everything. So um, I think looking at, you know, who are likely purchasers of the business, can you do it internally? Um, and, you know, do you want to do it internally? You know, if you've got a bunch of goofs working for you, that's who's going to be paying you. So that's not a smart move. Um, and then, you know, I, it's from for most business owners, it's their baby. You know, they got to pick the colors of the logo. They got to, you know, decide everything. And so giving that up can be a real, a real trauma. I mean, uh, as I was telling you before we signed on, it's, you know, um, you know, COVID really changed the whole business. I mean, it changed for me. Um, making it easier because I wasn't in the office talking with everybody every day and, and involved. I was, I was still working, but I was now working from home. So that was a nice introduction for me to retirement and what it was likely going to be like. Um, but it, you know, COVID also offered us a huge opportunity um, to change our business model from an in-person training to you know, a remote training. Um, and we found that customers liked it because they were um, not a having to spend a huge amount on expenses to get somebody to a particular place. Uh, when we did the testing, uh, we were finding that people were, were scoring about the same and getting the same general experience out of it. Um, we were seeing a benefit because all our costs were going down from running hotel rooms and uh, you know ballrooms and video equipment and all the stuff that goes along with going into so all became not needed anymore. Um, so that part of the business really, you know, miraculously changed, um, and probably offers some different value to a purchaser down the road that we would have seen, you know, two, two years or more ago, mm -hmm. because we're doing a lot of stuff remotely. I, mean, I don't have to send somebody to Dubai, you know, yeah. we can, you know, we can inconvenience somebody by saying, okay, well, you're going to do a seminar from 11 at night to six in the morning. <laughs> um, but we don't have to spend all that money on, on travel and time away from it. So <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure I really answered your question, but 
um, you know, simply recognizing um, not just the dollar value to get it out, but, you know, somebody who's also going to um, take care of the business. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, it's, it's still our name on the door, you know, although, you know, it might be a division of, but um, you would hope that they would have the same integrity, you know, just because somebody's got money doesn't necessarily mean that you'd want to sell to them. Yeah. That's, that's Unless you didn't cure it. Yeah. Just punching all the way out at, yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, I do appreciate you sharing that. You touched on that emotional piece too, of it being your baby and and having to move on. And, and I can imagine that that's its own journey in and of itself. Yeah, it is. And, and uh, I think, um, it, I, you know, as I told you, I'm pretty good at retirement though. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, it, it would have been a big step to go cold Turkey for me. Um, you know, so, um, you know, I had kind of an interim step of going half time, which was, you know, a pretty good gig. I'd come in and have lunch with the guys and work four or five hours, have, have a drink and then we'd go home and, you know, and, and things were pretty much the same. And then, um, you know, with COVID, I was separated and, and that made it again easier for me. So I, I think for a lot of people, um, you got to get out because the other thing you don't want to do is be the getting in the way of the new bosses. You know, you're still sitting there. Everybody came to you before and you're still there but somebody else is in charge and now you got to kind of shift, shift it away. Um, Which was, you know, from a, from to go back to kind of the expansion of business. Originally it was when we started to do seminars, it was Doug and Dave, you know, and it was the Doug and Dave show. And, you know, and we were always together. Well, then it got big enough that it had to be the Doug show or the Dave show. You know, and some people would prefer Doug. Some people would want me. Um, so then all of a sudden, you know, it's now we got to introduce Shane. And, you know, what we found is that it, it became, you know, easier as we got bigger. People still had their sure. their favorites if they had them before. You know, I want I want Mike Reddington, you know. Well, what's wrong with you? But <laughs> fair question. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, I mean, it, it, the business became no matter who went, it was going to be a quality operation and they, they were going to get the same product, you know. So, you know, it, those are all pieces of the evolution. But giving, you know, um, I, I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, the letting go is a real hard piece. I can imagine. I can certainly imagine. So to start wrapping this conversation up, because I know you have far more important things to get to as, as soon as we're done talking today. That's right. I got to go to the zoo with the grandkids. Yes. more <laughs> That is absolutely more important. Um, to give people just a little bit of context as we wrap this up, you've been in business for 40 years. 40, well, WZ has been in business for 40 plus years. Um, I think it's very safe to say that well over a million people have gone through the training at this point. Yeah. I think the very private sector, public sector, beyond, well over a million people have been trained 
on techniques that you created through a company that you founded by you or people that you hired. Like the world is a better place because of Dave Zolowski and Doug Wicklander. When you think about the ripple effects that you guys have had, the cases that have been solved, the relationships that have been forged. It could, I mean, I could drone on, but it is for two guys starting, should we do this? To what it has become. In the out pretty good. Yeah. When we say countries, I mean, literally, we had a map once with all the countries that we've been to and all the people we touch. We're literally talking over a million people completely and totally around the world have gone through training programs on techniques that you created. And that is an amazing achievement in and of itself. The last question I want to ask you before we head out is if you had to choose one thing, what are you most proud of? Um, well, it's probably the, the, um, the feedback over the years. Um, you know, when I retired on LinkedIn, for example, you know, I had literally hundreds of people saying you helped my career yeah um and the other thing is um as part of that you were kind for sure um when i i know you'll take this the right way but when people ask me about our relationship i describe you as like my favorite uncle like there was there was all the fun times but there were also the hard educational times and and there was everything in between so you know, from the most sincere place I can find, all I can say is thank you. you know, the yeah. the technique you created is really what jump-started my career in investigations, which at the time was a part-time job and not something I'd ever actually planned on doing. You know, then your you and your organization brought me on board and that completely and totally changed how I live my life from how I think to how I problem solve to my ability to navigate the world literally. Um, it's how I met some of my closest friends. It's how I met my wife. It's how I got to be where I am today. So literally the Mike Reddington who is here today, for better or worse, we'll let other people judge, wouldn't be here today without Dave Zalowski. So not only do I want to thank you for carving the time out of your day before you run off with the grandkids today, but thank you so much for all of the time and everything that you invested in me throughout our relationship. I'll be forever grateful. Well, and I've enjoyed the relationship as well and all the hard work you put in and you're where you are today because you have to get up and go to apply things. And, and that's not everybody can do that. So kudos to you as well. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Dave, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. You've had such an impact on so many investigators' careers, let alone mine. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to tell us a little bit more about your story. It's great to go back and revisit the founding of WZ, the origins of the WZ method to trade interrogation stories, reminisce about our time together and share so many important examples of prioritizing the truth, avoiding false confessions and the mindset that it takes to truly connect with others. Yeah. When you talked about the feedback you've received on your career and the organization you've built, it's all true. And I want to echo the fact that you were kind above all else, everything you've done, 
kind is a very, very important adjective to share as well. So thank you for everything that you have given to our world, because there is no doubt the field of interview and interrogation would be much, much different if not for you and Doug Wicklanders. Thank you so, so very much. And thank you to everybody that took the time to listen. Hopefully, if you are in the investigations world and you are familiar with Dave, you filled in some blanks and, and got to see him if you haven't met him previously. And if you're not, hopefully now you can start to see where the genesis of a lot of the things we teach and do come from and how these philosophies apply, not just in the interview room, but outside as well. Of course, we don't want to go anywhere without thanking our sponsors, Human Tell, as always, for anyone who is looking to expand their observation toolkit, head over to humantel.com, experience all of their content and learn more about how to accurately interpret and identify what people are likely thinking and feeling in the context of any situation by accurately evaluating how their changing emotions are leaking through their facial expressions and their nonverbal communication. Enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off of all of their best-in-class online trading. I vouch for it personally. I've taken it all. Of course, we have Emotional Intelligence Magazine as well. Please head over to ei-magazine.com and dive into their Emotional Intelligence catalog, webinars, podcast interviews, online training, in-person training, articles, blogs, and beyond. All the content you would look for is right there. And of course, especially on a day where we talk to Dave Zalowski, please check out the International Association of interviewers at certifiedinterviewer.com. That is an organization with a singular focus of continuing to move the needle and make sure that every professional interviewer is executing morally, legally, and ethically sound techniques in all of their conversations. Check out their legal updates, check out their interviewer resources, check out their networking opportunities. They have online sessions available, in-person sessions, webinars, recertification opportunities. Please, if you're an investigator yourself or a leader of a team of investigators, check to see if the membership is worth it for you. And also for all the interviewers out there, check out the certified forensic interviewer designation while you're there as well. Do you qualify and is it right for you at this point in your career? It will be worth your time, worth checking out. Please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com. Check out the International Association of Interviewers. Please do all the things that the algorithms like. Please like the show, share the show, comment on the show, tell your friends about it, share your feedback with us. What did you like? What didn't you like? Would you like to see more of or less of? Please, your feedback means a lot to us as we continue to adapt and grow the show. We'd love to continue to provide people with the information that they feel is the most important. And of course, one last time, Dave, it was amazing to see you. Thank you so, so much for carving out an hour to be with me today. Thank you all for joining us. It is always truly appreciated. Stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. 